1: 1, 2, 1, 2, 3,
2: 4 Josie and the Pussycats It's a film that was supposed to be a big hit in 2001 and, well, there's no nice way of putting it but it was a commercial and critical flop Then something weird happened a movie that seemingly few people cared about and even fewer people saw, started to become a cult classic with a bubbling and frothy fandom that spanned countries and generations. Welcome to the first episode of Josie and the Podcats, where over the next six episodes and a few bonus eps, we're going to be looking at exactly why that is and getting answers from the people who know best. The writers, the directors, the musicians, the stars, the historians, the bosses, you name it. Over the past year, we've travelled from an island off the coast of West Australia to the heart of Hollywood itself, Los Angeles, to speak to everyone we could about Josie and the Pussycats for this limited podcast series, hosted by me, their selling author, screenwriter and journalist of 16 years, Maria Lewis.
3: And produced by me, Blake Howard of One Heat Minute Productions, host of One Heat Minute. All the president's minutes, the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans, and producer of Increment Vice.
2: It's a lot of bloody minutes. So come on in, sit down, and let's gossip. Josie
1: and
2: the Podcast. Okay, so I know what you're thinking. Why the hell am I listening to a podcast about Josie and the Pussycats that's made by a Kiwi and an Australian?
3: I don't have an answer for you. (laughs) <laughs> right. I actually don't have an answer. I do. I can say that uh, people who know me know that I have a penchant and an impulse. A penchant? A penchant? Uh, 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 I believe he's the author of Inherent Vice. Thomas Penchant? Um, no, he's not. Uh, I have. I have got a knack for uh, naming and creating way too many podcasts. But I feel like this was like my smartest decision of the last year to plant a seed in your brain. Because this is your baby and I'm just like helping you give birth to it. I'm like your doula. I'm like, breathe, just happen. You are like the ultimate Josie and the Pussycats fan.
2: Well, I'd be very mad at my interuterine device for failing. But (laughs) look, the tight version of why we're doing this is basically 2019 had been a really weird year for me personally, suffice to say. Mm. (laughs) And in hindsight, 2020 is even worse for everybody though.
3: It's nice. You're here, so it's nice.
2: Yeah, that's great. I love that for us. Um, <laughs> but in comparison and with how bad 2020 has been – it has been a time that I think a lot of us are wanting to focus on things that are positive. Yes. On things that we love. Yes. On things that we earnestly love to love. Yes. And a lot of that is pop culture. And Josie and the Pussycats has been something I've been obsessed with pop culturally since the very first time I saw it in a cinema when I was in grade eight. It was a seminal film for me. It was a seminal film for a lot of Australians, which is a weird thing to think about. And um I mean, going from that period from being a tween to a teen can be a really isolating experience anyway, let alone if you're experiencing it from an isolated place like Australia, which is <laughs> yeah. the asshole of the world. <laughs> um, and the idea for this podcast was – it was essentially your idea, really. So you should take credit early on because, uh, yeah.
3: Yeah, look, uh, I – uh, you know, with Increment Vice, uh, particularly with Travis Woods, who's, uh, you know, the, the host and engine of that show. I just identified people who had a passion for something that I just thought was boundless. Like I I am definitely the Josie and the Pussycats novice and uh, had Maria staying with me and watched this damn film so many times. And it actually is kind of, in my mind, it's, it's like The 90s answer to this is Spinal Tap. It is an underrated masterpiece. And she kind of put me into it. And, you know, I just felt like your passion for it and your uh, director's commentary, unauthorized director's commentary in my lounge room was like, why the fuck isn't this a podcast? So (laughs) I'm working my
2: way up to authorize. Give me time. But look. Basically, for, for people who are listening to this and maybe unfamiliar with my work or unfamiliar with Blake's work, the idea for Josie and the Podcats was born out of a... Sh- we've been best friends for nearly 10 years and this podcast was born out of a shared connection, I guess, that we've had over the course of a really long period of time. Um, we love to love things and over the course of the past 12 months, we've interviewed people for this show over and over again, people from all around the world and I guess one of the big takeaways that we've had has been that this film being seminal for me personally that's not a solo experience that's actually extremely common for a lot of people and not just the people who made the movie
3: I think what's so cool is that these movies that like resonate with you so deeply like you're not alone and that's what's so amazing about like contemporary times is that like you might think you're alone out there in the universe but there are people out there who this you know this is their heat Maria
2: It is my hate. And on that note, let's get on to the rest of the show. Um, Josie and the Pussycats, it's important to a lot of people and not just Aussies and not just Kiwis who have a real affinity for this movie, very weirdly, but Brits, uh, Americans, the Japanese, Africans, Russian fandoms. There are people all over the world who connect with this movie that bombed during its theatrical release. There's no other way to say it. And that was almost 20 years ago. Here's Josie and the Pussycats writers and directors, Harry Elfon and Deborah Kaplan, talking about that a little bit more specifically.
4: And then it was opening weekend, I remember there was some call, somebody
1: used the phrase-
2: Dead on arrival.
4: Yeah,
1: it's DLA. And that was a bit of a gut punch. I think I went to a theater in the Beverly Center, so how long ago there was some
5: movie theaters in the Beverly Center, yeah. and there were like five people in the
2: theater. Like I picked my head and I was like, Okay. <laughs> We're with. Yeah. Before we hear more from them and dive deep into the development of the film, the production, the release, the soundtrack—oh my god, the soundtrack—and the legacy of Josie and the Pussycats, we thought it was important to start with the history because for a lot of people, you know, fans of Riverdale, the CW show, or even just this movie in particular, they might know where Josie and the Pussycats comes from, and they should because. That's important, and Josie's IRL origin story informs so much of her and the Pussycats' future. Josie and the Pussycats were a spin-off within Archie Comics, a world that was first birthed by comic book artist and writer Bob Montana. Who was Bob Montana? Well, how about we let his daughter Lynn Montana tell you herself? My name is Lynn. My in Montana, and I am Bob Montana's
1: daughter, and Bob Montana was the uh, creator of the Archie characters. Well, my father always used to say Archie was famous, not him, and he was the kind of guy, he was, he was more happy in the background, you know, in his jeans and t-shirt, riding in his pickup truck downtown to get, you know, to get his mail. And talking with people on the street, you know, just a common guy. He was always just a common work guy, you know, he wasn't anybody special. It was Archie that was famous, not him. Um, but, you know, he did do something that was, um, that has a, it, it is a wonderful legacy because it made people laugh and it brought a little cheer and, and pleasure into people's lives. And that's what he wanted to do for a living, as well as, um, you know, satisfy his own desire to be an artist of, of a sort, you know, or a cartoon. I mean, that was always his dream, was to create his own cartoon strip. So his he, legacy he is glad to see worth remembering, and, and uh, I'm glad to see it going so well.
2: Comic books are considered one of the great American inventions, and Archie Comics, which started out as MLJ Comics in 1939, was right there at the very start of the medium. The Archie characters, which included the red-headed title guy himself, Jughead, Betty, Veronica, of course, Betty and Veronica, they all first appeared on the page in the early 1940s, thanks to Montana and publisher John L. Goldwater. Now, Goldwater's a pretty seminal figure, and we'll get to more of him later. Everything from the personalities and physicalities of the cast to the geography of the town of Riverdale and the high school itself was said to be drawn very heavily from Montana's own experiences. First appearing in Pep Comics, Archie soon got his own title called, quite simply, Archie. And ever since then, he has become this mainstay of pop culture.
5: So my name is Tim Hanley. I'm a comic book historian and an author. I can't remember ever not being interested in Archie comics. I read them since I could read. My grandmother went to like yard sales all the time and would get me all the old comics she could find, which is what got me into superheroes, but also big into Archie, and then I would get Digest whenever I could. I've just been an Archie enthusiast from as far back as I can remember. I thought they were hilarious. I still think they're hilarious. They're corny as anything, but especially the older stuff is super funny. And um, I don't know there's, like, a comforting familiarity to them. It's basically variations of the same story again and again. But, I don't know, funny every time. They just work for me. Well, it's, like, it's quintessential white middle America. And so it's been popular in those circles basically since the 40s. I mean, any character after a certain point will sustain a life of its own, like Batman and Superman tend to. And Archie kind of hit big in the 40s and just kind of snowballed from there and I mean there's been ups and downs it's definitely having a moment now for sure but like in the 2000s Archie was in very rough shape kind of very outdated it really took this recent revival to bring them back like I I was getting worried about Archie in the 2000s but yeah there's something about it like it's teenagers it's the same antics over and over again it's really high turnover of readership like there's maybe a a five to eight year gap where people will read Archie. So like it's a new generation over and over and over and over and over again.
2: Bob Montana passed away at the age of 54 in 1975 after having a heart attack while cross-country skiing near his home. But his legacy has lived on largely thanks to the hard work of his family, like Lynn and her siblings, Sister Paige, Brothers Raymond and Donald, Archie diehards and his hometown of Meredith in New Hampshire, which inspired so much of his work. The town has certainly kept his memory alive, with monuments built to honour the colourful cast of characters, as well as Bob himself. Like, there's legitimately Archie statues in this town. There's an Archie bench, which is wearing a face mask right now to fight coronavirus. An Archie museum, manned by lovely curators and librarians, like the wonderful Linda from Meredith Library, who first vetted me before putting me in touch with Lynn and who sent me the shot of Archie's bench wearing a face mask to fight coronavirus. You can see it on my Twitter, at MovieMaz, that's with two Zs. What I'm saying is it's a very specific fandom. In fact, I don't want to use the word gatekeepers because that has a negative connotation, but these Archie fans, loyalists, diehards, whatever you want to call them, they protect the legacy of Montana and Goldwater's Archie universe in a really, really unique way. Here's Lynn again. It is special, and actually it's quite unique, because most, I can't
1: think of any other character in the cartoons and the comics that has aged, you know, over the years, and IG um, Comics Incorporated, the parent company, um, has, uh, you know, more so since my father passed on, of course, um, but they've you know, put Archie in different situations where he graduated from college and he was courting Betty and Veronica, and then he ended up marrying one of them, and, and then the scenario of what it would be like if he married the other one, and so he didn't stay a 16-year-old teenager, um, and now of course with the Netflix show Riverdale, yeah, that's a whole other metamorphosis of Archie, where um, You know, it's kind of archie on the dark side. And although it's extremely different from what my father created, um, I can understand why it's popular today, and I can understand why the parent company uh, has chosen to go that way. Because um, they were mostly responsible for the comic book, whereas my father was responsible for the cartoon strip. And the comic book traditionally was geared to a market um, for uh, 13, 14-year-old girls. That was the market share they were looking for. Of course, it branched out from there. I mean, there were teenage boys who were buying Archie Comics, too, because they liked liked looking at Betty and Veronica in bikinis, you know. (laughs) But, um, But I think that 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 market share kind of had pretty much dwindled down and was, you know, losing it, you know, the interest and the purchasing um, numbers, and so turning it over into a a product like Riverdale was, uh, you know, it's kind of a a, a, you know, a brilliant marketing move on their part I like what they've done, I like the characters you know, given what it is you know, not my father's Archie but given what it is um, they've, they've been um, very respectful of the characters. Um, and they're just putting their spin on it. And I, I, I like that. I can't think of any other cartoon character who is involved like that. So that might say something about Archie and the iconicness you know, of Archie as a figure in the you know, Americana.
2: It's true. Archie is an iconic American figure, and the fictional world he existed and exists within has birthed more than just one. Sabrina the Teenage Witch, for example, was an Archie character who has become popular enough over the years to get her own comic series, 90s live-action sitcom, teen horror comic, animated series, and now a popular Netflix series complete with a tie-in clothing line, songs, you name it. And just like Sabrina, Josie and the Pussycats too were birthed from the Archie universe and the mind of a man named Dan DiCarlo. I'll let Tim Hanley explain.
5: Yeah, at the time, Dan DiCarlo was... Uh an artist for Archie, not the the head lead artist he would become years down the road. And, um, even though comics were big in the fifties, most people were still trying to get into comic strips. If you could get a syndicated comic strip in a newspaper, that's where the money was. And, uh, DiCarlo had done a strip. I can't remember the name, but Stan Lee wrote it in, uh, I think like 1959. It lasted about a year. And, uh, through those contacts he kind of came up with some more strips after that one ended and one of the ones he pitched was what was an early version of Josie and the Pussycats, which at that time was basically Archie with a female lead, more or less.
2: Now some key things to note, Carlo was a bit of a legend, suffice to say. In his early 20s, he was drafted into the U.S. Army and during the Second World War, he drew a weekly military cartoon for the Allies and painted mascots on the noses of airplanes. It was during this time that he met this absolute smoke show named Josette Josie Dumont. And my French accent is terrible, but hey, points for trying. She was French, a former model, and she'd been set up with De Carlo on a blind date in Belgium in 1945, just after the Battle of the Bulge. And they had it. Whatever it was, it sparked between the two of them, despite Carlo not speaking French and Dumont not speaking English. They learned and they fell in love. In an interview with the New York Times in 2001, Josie said, We communicated with drawing. He would draw things for me to make me understand what he had in mind. He was really so amusing. Instead of just using words, he would use cartoons to express himself. Right away, We knew that we were meant for each other. The war ended and they got married. Had twin boys who would later go on to work for Archie as well. Something, something, something. And next minute, they're on a cruise in the Caribbean. There was a dress-up party. Champagne was bubbling. And Josie, who was now Mrs. Josie DiCarlo, dressed up as a pussycat. The ears, the tail, the whole thing. And that's where the seed of what would become Josie and the Pussycats was planted in DiCarlo's mind. It's easy to draw a through line between what the band was as a musical act and what was popular at the time. Josie and the Pussycats debuted during the height of all female girl groups, and some of my favourites like the Supremes, the Shangri La, the Ronettes, the Marvelettes, and with the exception of the Andrews sisters, who were very popular during World War II, the most successful of these acts were all black. Yet this was the 60s in America. The hair was big, the eyeliner was bigger, but biggest of all was the racism. It was insidious. It was deadly. It was ever-present. Juicy debuted in Archie Comics in February 1963, and in August of that same year, 250,000 people campaigning for civil rights in America gathered in front of the Lincoln Memorial in what would become known as the March on Washington, D.C. On the Lincoln Memorial steps, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his infamous I Have a Dream speech.
1: I have a dream. children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream
2: Racial segregation still existed in much of America. Landmark cases were still being fought in courts to bring an end to Jim Crow laws. African Americans were still marginalized, vilified and murdered. The civil rights movement was at the forefront of a lot of people's minds and along with the Vietnam War, it was the dominant political discussion of the 60s. So what does all of that have to do with a fictional trio of chicks who dress up as pussycats and play pop songs? Well, that trio was not how we recognize it today. Here's Tim. Well,
5: Josie the Pussycats gets like picked up by Archie in 1962 and it's there's no pussy yet it's just Josie it's Melody it's Pepper instead of Valerie and then yeah with the cartoon they reconfigure it and bring in Valerie in 1969 which is kind of huge for comics there's Archie would bring in some black characters later with like Chuck and Nancy but that was mid-70s um they had Puerto Rican characters too they brought in like Frankie and Maria but again years down the road Valerie was was quite ahead of that and even if you look at Um, the mainstream superhero publishers at the time. Marvel had Black Panther at this stage, I suppose, but DC, there wasn't a whole lot. So, like, Valerie was was huge for representation in comics.
2: When Tim says the cartoon, what he's talking about is the Hanna-Barbera animated series Josie and the Pussycats. It ran for just one season, from 1970 to 1971, airing on CBS every Saturday morning, but this was the era of reruns and syndication. There were only 16 episodes originally, but reruns the following year from 71 to 72 saw Josie and the Pussycats, who have long tails and ears for hats, reach a massive mainstream audience as they were beamed into the households of millions it's Patrice Holloway's voice you hear singing the theme song for the cartoon. In terms of representation, if you can see it, Who can be it? And suddenly, Archie had a very popular property where one-third of the band was not white. Furthermore, the character of Valerie, if you've ever seen the cartoon, was the smart one in the group. She was reasonable, logical, a mechanical whiz, and really the glue that held everyone together. She played the bass and the tambourine, and her sheer existence broke boundaries at the time.
1: Hold it. We'll put these uniforms on and pretend to be robot laundry workers.
2: Valerie was the first black character in the main cast of a Saturday morning cartoon, ever. Here's Tim.
5: A thing they got a lot of pushback for as well. Uh, The TV show more so than the comics. When they were developing the TV show, the early idea was that they would have, they would bring in uh, Valerie, but the record company that was making the music behind the show was very strongly against it until they did auditions and the gal they got to do Valerie's voice was so good. They were like, no, 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 we got to, we got to stick with Valerie. Patrice Holloway sang so good that Valerie was allowed to exist.
2: I'm just going to repeat that one more time for those at the back. Patrice Holloway sang so good that Valerie was allowed to exist. It's the bossest thing I've ever heard, but it's also true. The daughter of Motown legend, Brenda Holloway, Patrice was kind of unbelievable. Like, just listen to this cut from one of her early singles with Capitol Records. It's called Ecstasy. Not my personal favourite of her songs. Uh, that would be Stolen Hours. So if you're looking for more Patrice Holloway, I definitely recommend you check that out. But before the Josie and the Pussycats animated series hit the small screen, Hanna-Barbera also started developing an IRL Josie and the Pussycats band that would be the singing voices of the gals in the cartoon, but also release an album and work as like multi-platform cross-promotion. It seems a weird thing to imagine right now in 2020. It's like Netflix actually staging an intergalactic song competition to tie in with the Get Swifty episode of Rick and Morty season two. But in the 50s 60s 70s it wasn't actually that unusual in the late 60s the first Archie comics animated Saturday morning cartoon hit it was called the Archie show and it was a colossal win for CBS and the ratings but the band in the show who were called the Archies also had a number one billboard hit with sugar 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 is kind of iconic and this is a song you're definitely gonna know okay everybody Here's-
4: Sugar! Sugar.
2: It's very saccharine, but Sugar Sugar was the number one song of 1969. The number one song. And its success led to a whole lot of other weird spin-off Archie stuff that, of course... Tim is all over like answer to picnic.
5: Some attempts at TV shows in the 60s. Um, God awful. Like variety special in the 70s. That was you can see it on YouTube. You shouldn't. It's bad.
2: Oh, we're looking it um, up.
5: <laughs> yeah, there's a this is a tangent. But there's a, it's like a series of sketches and vignettes. There's one where Archie and Betty like find themselves alone at Betty's house. And Archie was like this is what we've been waiting for, Betty. And Betty's like, I don't know about this. And like he aggressively tries to get things going with Betty while she loudly objects. And then when she finally pushes him off, he's like sits in a chair and pokes. And it's just, it's rough.
2: The point is, there was precedent for some wacky shit. So this Josie and the Pussycats IRL band starts getting formed, they have auditions in LA, Patrice Holloway, who already works with Capital, is so good. She sings Valerie into existence. Denny Jansen's La La Productions are tasked with putting the group together, and he's a hit songwriter and producer, so he knows what he's doing, and he presents Josie and the Pussycats with Patrice as Valerie, Kathy Doher as Josie, and Sherry Moore as Melody. And Sherry's famous in her own right. She's much better known now as Cheryl Ladd. But there were issues. Barbera were not keen on Patrice, as Tim said. They wanted an all-white trio, which Jansen refused to do and threatened to walk away from the whole project altogether. He'd written for the Partridge family and had a lot of clout in the music industry. But simply, he had capital and he leveraged that capital to make sure Patrice wasn't expendable. The arts tend to be a little more woke than other industries, and folks had heard about Jansen. They heard about Jansen flexing and Hanna Barbera flinching, so much so that a bunch of some of the most legendary session musicians at the time offered their services at a major discount to show their support for the stand that he had taken, including a bunch of musos from Elvis Presley's band, including Jerry Swift, who played bass just like the fictional Valerie, and Ronnie Tut on drums just like the fictional Melody. The band Josie and the Pussycats released one album in conjunction with the first season of the animated series. It was called Josie and the Pussycats, obviously, and featured the IRL girls on the cover posing in black leotards with sheer stockings with the cartoon characters up in the corner to make that visual comparison between the TV show. Now, there wasn't a big hit on the album. They cut some covers, some originals, some unreleased songs that appeared just in the show – some catalogs, mail order singles only, which actually were mostly pretty good. Inside, outside, upside down is an absolute banger and co-written by Jansen. They released six singles for the charts, but there was no Sugar Sugar like the Archies had, which you know that's okay. Honestly, Josie and the Pussycat songs were better. Here's my personal fave: You've Got a Long Way, Baby, which is very Jackson Five-esque. <laughs>
3: Oh, no. I know you come Josie and the podcast will be right back after a message from our sponsors.
2: For those who like to wear their heart on their sleeves or make a statement to the world about the things they love, Kirby Lawler's handmade acrylic jewellery is one of a kind inspired by victorian era symbology the occult the macabre and everything i love but also everything in between it's vintage recreation jewelry with a modern day twist and definitely not your grandma's brooches you can take a peek at her website kirby that's kirby k-i-r-b-e-e or follow her on instagram at kirby there's heaps of cute bunny photos too
3: It's australia's biggest and longest running pop culture convention supernova comic-con and gaming is back and better than ever in 2020 with six shows around the country supernova features a huge range of guests from worlds of sci-fi fantasy anime comic books literature and cosplay and blasts into cities like melbourne the gold coast sydney perth adelaide and brisbane it's free for kids 12 and under, with a paying adult, so make sure you check out supernova.com.au for more info, tickets, and to find out when the next Supernova is stopping by in your city. This is the Comic-Con you've been looking for. Link in our show notes.
2: So due to the popularity of the first and only season during those reruns on CBS, Josie and the Pussycats didn't get a second season per se, but they did go to space. And No. You didn't mishear me, I said space. Josie
1: in outer Pussycats are all in
2: Josie and the Pussycats in Outer Space, also 16 episodes, which ran from 1973 to 1974, saw the trio, Josie, Melody, and Valerie accidentally elbowed into a spacecraft by villain Alexandra and sent off into space. Being team musicians and not astronauts, you think it would be all over Red Rover, but of course, Valerie takes charge and works out how to fly the spaceship. It's pretty wacky and it's pretty weird, leaning into a lot of the popular sci-fi tropes at the time and each episode sees the Pussycats visit a different planet each week. Fun fact, the spaceship in the TV series was modelled after the spaceship discovery in Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, which had come out only a few years earlier in 1968. The songs aren't as good, neither of the storylines, including a few towards the end of the second season that try to address that troublesome second wave feminism that was on the rise. There was a character called Bleep though, an alien pet thing that seemingly only Melody didn't want to kill because its only dialogue was bleep. Over and over and over again. Bleep,
1: bleep, 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 bleep.
2: Oh, I think he's just adorable. It's hell. But for some people, like one of the biggest old school animation diehards I know, the temperature in hell is kind of noise. All
4: right. For Sassel, and I'm a Josie and the Pussycat fanatic. Well, the show I remember Josie and the Pussycat in outer space was my first encounter with a pussycat. Um, I was too young when it was first came on TV, but it was on syndication here in Los Angeles on KCOP Channel 13, and the first time I ever saw it, they were in outer space, and I was just addicted immediately to it. You know, I was just like, what is this? And I just remember just every day going to the TV set at that time to watch it. And sometimes they would mix in the regular for season and I would just so it off because I wanted to see the outer space one. But I grew to love the other ones just as much. But I just, I was obsessed with the spaceship. I would constantly draw it, even though it looked like someone's mother's vibrator. You know, I would just constantly draw it. I stole my sister's blue baton to pretend that's the spaceship. And it's really probably the first thing I became a fan of as a child. I just thought Mellie and Bleed, Bleed, Bleed were, like, the coolest thing. And then I found out they actually created Bleeply because they were going to make a stuffed animal of him and, like, you know, market that. Because they were trying to, like, they were actually going to market, like, toys. But I guess because it didn't really do that well. Like it only was on for a year, and that was the end of the pussycat. They never marketed any stuff, but they still did certain toys. Like, um, do you remember Viewmasters? Did you have Viewmasters in Australia? Okay, in the States, they had it was called a give show, and it was kind of like a slide projector, but instead of like individual slides, it was like one long strip of slides, and you kind of like put it in the projector and you go square by square and tell the story. And one of the slide strips was showing the pussycat in outer space. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I saw it in the toy store and my head exploded and it was like, I have to have this! <laughs> like it, it was my first like love, like pop culture love. You know, until I discovered when the Carter and Wonder Woman of course, you know? <laughs> but, you know, I remember um, a lot, this is a rarity was, uh, Scooby-Doo TV series. Um, one of the seasons, it was called the Scooby-Doo movies, and they would always have like guest stars on it every week. Like Sonny and Cher would be a uh, cartoons, and like Mama Cat. And one time, it was Josie and the Pussycats and the Scooby-Doo gang, and they were fighting some ghosts on a showboat. And I was always remember that as a kid. Yeah. You know?
2: But the show, like its predecessor, ended up in syndication, and those reruns of both the original Josie and the Pussycats animated series and Josie and the Pussycats in Outer Space cultivated generations of fans like Forrest as they ran on repeat right up until the late 90s. They had a big cultural impact, according to Alex Segura, co-president of Archie Comics.
6: Yeah, I mean, they're kind of, they kind of set the stage for a lot of bands that you see in the 70s, like the Runaways or just these all-girl, all-woman bands that don't need to be shepherded in by some kind of, like, you know, dude, Svengali type, you know, they, they did it on their own and they write their own songs and they play their own instruments and it's really empowering. Um, and it's been that way since the beginning. Like, you, you know, you start but Josie starts off as a solo character and then it becomes this band and that's where she really takes off. That's where people, you know, really kind of were attracted to the story.
2: And it's something that kept people attracted to it, and Josie in particular, as a property for years. Even when Archie, as a traditional comic, wasn't as popular as it once was during the grunge era of the 90s, Dan DiCarlo's spin-offs had traction. He co-created Sabrina the Teenage Witch, which had its own four-year run as a cartoon in the 70s, and became an enduring sitcom that ran from 1996 all the way up into 2003 on ABC and WB with Melissa Joan Hart. It had a huge audience on Friday nights, which is kind of hard to imagine in the current TV climate, but it was around 17 million viewers in the US alone. And yeah, some of them may have been old school Archie fans and familiar with the perky teenage witch and her aunts that started off in Bob Montana's original Riverdale world. But a large chunk of them had no idea where Sabrina came from. They were an entirely new audience, an entirely new generation, and the viability of Josie as a brand with a fresh, modern spin, started to look promising once again. Not that it had ever stopped being just that to the fans. Here's Alex.
6: Well, there's a little bit of, like, wish fulfillment involved, obviously. I think everyone at some point in their life wants to be in a rock band, and you want to be in a rock band with your best friends and live that amazing life of rock. And the difference between, the thing I always say, you know, I wrote the Archie's comic, which is very much about... Archie and his friends trying to be in a band, and they're you know like a local indie band. So if the Archies are this local indie band that you go and see because your friends are in it, Josie are the superstars. Josie and the Pussycats are the superstars that are on tour already. You know they're like another level. So there's a lot of wish fulfillment there, Um, and the characters are great. I feel like Josie is this very level-headed, smart, funny. Like I don't want to say humble. Like she's very confident. You know she is who she is, and she's very self-aware, which is really you know, it was really forward thinking at the time uh, when they were created. Um, and you have Melody, who's, who comes off as a little ditzy at first, but also has a lot of heart. And Val is awesome, too. So I think the characters are really varied and entertaining. And just their chemistry works really well. And like a lot of the great Archie strips, they have a good supporting cast. So you have the Cabots, you have Alan M. Uh, it's really just fun. And it's, it's got all the elements of the Archie stuff. But with these new characters, like Josie and Archie have a lot in common uh, in terms of how they're portrayed, like just their sense of humor, and um, their every, every person qualities. I think those, they really anchor, you know, their, their stories.
2: Coming up on the next episode of Josie and the Podcasts, development. How exactly is Hollywood going to revitalize an Archie Comics property loaded with so much pop cultural history? There's lawsuits, there's Out of Space, a Betty and Veronica movie shepherded by Harvey Weinstein that thankfully got lost in development hell and an audition from Beyonce.
5: Oh my God, are you fucking insane? Beyonce, Beyonce, Beyonce. Be
2: sure to subscribe to this show so you're the first to know about all the upcoming episodes and some bonus ones, including one this week about how Archie broke the comics code and won our hearts. If you like this, Djour means chuck us a rating and review to help other people find the show as well. And this episode of Juicing the Podcasts was researched, written, and presented by me, Maria Lewis,
3: and produced by me, Blake Howard. Our podcast artwork was done by the talented Amy Reed, who you can find on Instagram at, at @ai.me.me or via email at amy.a.i.m.double.e.dot.read. 0310 at gmail.com and our jerkin theme is courtesy of amanda wilkinson and the band bossy love their new album me plus you is out now a lot of our guests are hugely talented in their own right and have impressive bodies of work like authors tim hanley and awesome alex segura and you can find links to their work in the show notes of this episode
2: also, big thanks to Lynn Montana and the whole Montana family for allowing us access to their family photos and archives. And if you know someone who's hearing impaired and would enjoy this show, written versions of every episode, including the bonus eps, are available online. The link is in our show notes. Until next time,
0: who's a rock star? Josie in the podcast.